today, excited about what God has in store for us. This morning we are going to begin going through the, uh, an entire book in, of the Bible. We're going to be going through the, the whole book of Philemon, and so if you have a Bible with you, why don't you turn there? It's a little obscure uh, letter, kind of stuck between Timothy and Hebrews. Um, <clears throat> not only are we going to begin the book of Philemon today, but we're also going to finish the book of Philemon today. That's because it is one of the shortest New Testament epistles, which is probably why some of you are still having trouble finding it. Um, uh, it's actually the third shortest. Second John is the shortest with just 13 verses, followed by third John with 15, and then Philemon with its 23. Um, to start off, we're just going to read the, the whole thing um, together. And uh, I know that's a little bit more than we usually start off reading, but, but here's the deal, y'all. This is not just one letter written from one man to another. This is the very Word of God. And if God's got something to say, it's pretty darn important that we know what He's saying, right? And so God is speaking to us through this this morning. So let's stand together in honor of that. And listen with our spiritual ears what the Lord is saying to us. The book of Philemon, verse 1, starts off, says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, Yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but out of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time, also prepare a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, 
Demas, Luke, and my fellow workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. Let's pray. Lord, I am asking that by your spirit, you would open our ears to hear what you are saying to us today. And Lord, that you would soften our hearts. Lord, plow up the fallow ground there so that the seed of your word will be planted in good soil and would bear much fruit. Jesus, would you let us see you in a way today, God, that just changes us forever. In your name I pray, amen. So the book of Philemon is one of three letters that Paul wrote that he addressed specifically to an individual. Of course, all of his other letters were addressed to the entire church, all the believers in a particular city. But he wrote to three specific individuals, two letters he wrote to Timothy, one to Titus, and then this one to Philemon. But this one is even more unique because in the other two, Paul gives instructions to Timothy and to, and to Titus on a number of different topics. But this letter is about one specific situation. And even though Paul doesn't say it in his letters to Timothy and Titus, it was understood that those letters were to be read to the whole church because everything he says in them could be applied to, to everyone, especially those who are in church leadership. This letter to Philemon is about a relational conflict between two people, Philemon and Onesimus. But Paul specifically includes the whole church there in his opening address, which means that, that even though this is an issue between two individuals, he wants this read to the whole church because there is something in this that he wants to serve as an example to all the believers. So what was the conflict? We don't know what it was specifically, but most scholars agree that uh, it seems that Philemon has stolen something, or, or Onesimus has stolen something from Philemon. That's because Paul says that whatever he owes you, charge that to my account. Philemon was part of the church in Colossae. More than likely, he was an elder there, but he was a, a close friend of Paul's. Onesimus was Philemon's servant. But something happened that caused him to leave. Paul wrote this from a Roman prison. And so Onesimus has left Philemon in Colossae, which was a part of uh, Greece, and has made his way all the way to Paul in Rome. Well, why did he go to Paul? Well, it doesn't say for sure why, but maybe he went to plead his case and explain the situation to him because he knew how much weight that Paul carried with his master. Or maybe he had just witnessed the way that Paul led and loved on the believers there, and so he knew that, that Paul was the kind of man that he could turn to. Whatever the reason, what seems to be evident is that Paul led Onesimus to the Lord during that visit. And that's because of the wording he used there in verse 10 when he says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. He's saying Onesimus has become my spiritual son. I have become his spiritual father during his visit here. And now that Onesimus has become a Christian, it changes everything. Paul wanted this letter read to the whole church because he saw it as an opportunity 
to show how the gospel works in a tangible way in our lives. This whole letter is an incredible picture of the gospel, which we're going to see in a little bit. One of the unique things about it is that you have parts of Roman, Greek, and Jewish culture all coming together here. Paul was a Jew and a Roman citizen writing from Rome to Philemon, who was Greek. All three of those cultures in the first century had lots of division in them. They each separated people into classes and groups. It was a complete hierarchy, a culture. And everyone was expected to stay when whichever group they were in. Each culture had stark divisions between men and women, slave and free, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, Greek and barbarian, educated and illiterate, on and on and on. Everyone was separated into these groups, and some groups were better than others. Jesus came and tore down every dividing wall that would separate us like that. That's why he said in Galatians 3:28, Paul did, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He said the same thing to the Colossians, which is the church that Philemon was a part of. In chapter 3, verse 11, he's talking about the renewal that Jesus brings. And he says, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. Anywhere in the world that the gospel has not taken root, the culture will be dominated by these types of divisions. I mean, just look at what's going on in our own country right now. As we continue to move more and more away from a Christian society to a secular society, these divisions are growing deeper and getting even more stark. I don't know if you are aware of it or not, but folks, I'm telling you right now, there is a concerted effort going on in this country to divide us into certain groups, whether it be groups based on race, economics, politics, religion, whatever. They are trying to get us, everyone that, that thinks they're a part of whatever group, as riled up as possible in order for us to identify more with whatever group that we're in. Every one of these groups has a carnival barker that is there just to rile up the group. And that, that, that is a purposeful thing that is going on in, in each group. As they get riled up, they think that it is this righteous indignation that they have and they are against these other groups. Folks, do not play into that, please. You are playing right into their hands whenever that's going on. They want us to have this us versus them mentality. Do not buy into that. Do not identify yourself more with any other group more than you identify as a follower of Christ. Race and all these other divisions are not cultural issues. They're not political issues. They are heart issues. And the more wicked everyone's heart gets, the more 
division there is going to be. The only way to break down walls of division is the power of the gospel. You can't legislate it. You can't make rules for it. It is only the gospel because Jesus is the only one that can transform a wicked heart. But it was these divisions that was the backdrop for this letter that Paul wrote. And he is about to break every one of those divisions down, at least in one household. And I just love the way that Paul does it. He starts this letter off by affirming all the good things that he sees in Philemon. In verse 4 and 5, look again. He says, I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And then down in verse 7, For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Now pay attention to this. Paul does not start his letter off by pointing out all the wrong things that Philemon has done. He doesn't tell him how he could have responded better to this situation to Onesimus and, and, and how he could have done it better. No, he affirms the truth of what he knows Philemon has as someone who is in Christ. And so he blesses him. He begins his letter by just blessing Philemon. Now, we did a, a series not long ago on the power of blessing, which we learned about, and this is a great example of that. Paul doesn't try to get Philemon to, to do what's right by first making him feel bad for what he's done wrong. But that is the tactic that we often go to, isn't it? Our first go-to is to usually list all the wrong things that someone has done, make them feel as guilty for it as possible, shaming them in the hopes that that guilt and shame is going to motivate them to change somehow. But does that usually work? No, it doesn't. It usually has the exact opposite effect. But then we get stuck in this cul-de-sac of stupidity which says more of what doesn't work just might work. And then so we just pile it on more and more, more guilt, more shame. Here's the things that you've done wrong, and we see no change and wonder why. It's because that doesn't work. It usually has the opposite effect and pushes people further away from whatever you're wanting them to do. Thank God that that is not how he operates with us. In order for us to do what's right, God always starts with the blessing. That's what we learned in that series we see it from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden when God gave Adam and Eve their mandate, their purpose. Genesis 1.28 says God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. He blessed them first and then told them what to do. He didn't say be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and then you will be blessed. No, the blessing came first, and we saw examples of that all throughout the Bible, all the way up to Jesus where he begins his ministry by first being baptized. He comes up out of the water, and the Father blesses him. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. When Jesus gets up out of that water, his first step on the bank is to begin his purpose. He goes into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And so in order for his son to be able to overcome that and be successful at what he came to do, instead of filling his head with instruction, he filled his heart with affirmation. He blessed him first for him 
to be able to do what he needed to. And here's the main point that we learned in this. I didn't have time to put together notes there in your bulletin to follow along, but there's a couple of things that I really want to highlight that'll be up on the screen. And the first one is this. Blessing isn't the reward for doing what's right. It is the power for doing what's right. It's not the reward, it's the power for it. Paul knows that. And so that's why he started off blessing Philemon and just affirming the gifts that he sees in him. He affirms the way that he refreshes others with his love. And he does that because he's going to be calling on that love in a pretty big way here in just a minute. Look at verse 8 and 9 again. He says, Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you. Paul says, I could just order you to do this. And he knew he could. And if he did, Philemon would do it because he thought so highly of Paul. I mean, Paul knew that he carried that kind of weight with him, but he was saying, I don't want you to do this because... You think you have to because of me. I want you to do this because you want to. I want it to be something that comes from your heart. This must be a pretty big request that he's going to make because of the way he's built this up so far. Look at verse 10. He says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is... Send in my very heart. He's sending Onesimus back to Philemon. And I could just imagine when Philemon read that statement right there, he was probably thinking, well, good. Paul knows the way I have been done wrong, and so he is sending him back so that justice can be served. Look at verse 15. It says, for, for perhaps he was for this reason separated you for a while that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. What? He's sending him back no longer as a slave, but, but as a brother? Well, this changes everything. Because see, in Paul's eyes, because Onesimus was now in Christ, his relationship with Philemon has drastically changed. That dividing wall of class is now obliterated. The moment Onesimus received Christ, he instantly went from a slave to a brother. And now Philemon sees that Paul isn't sending him back to make restitution. He's sending him back with a promotion. What in the world is going on here? It's even more than that. Look at verse 17. He says, If you then regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. Now, Philemon probably would have needed to set the letter down at that point and taking a deep breath and going, Did I read that right? And then read that again. Accept a slave who did me wrong the way I would accept Paul? I mean, think about it. It wasn't like he was saying, accept him as you would another member of your church. I mean, that in itself would have been radical enough. But Paul knew how he was viewed among the church there. He knew what kind of weight he carried. He knew that these people lived their entire lives on this system of hierarchy. And Paul was at the top of the ladder just under Jesus. 
I mean, do you realize how radical a change that would have been for Philemon to accept Onesimus the way he accepts Paul, for one thing, would mean that Onesimus would no longer be eating his meals in the slave quarters. From now on, he would be eating at Onesimus' table. That's a radical change. It would also mean that no longer would Onesimus be serving Philemon, but Philemon would now be serving Onesimus. Because that's what he would have done if Paul was in his house. Onesimus has done something wrong against Philemon, but now Paul is sending him back not for Philemon to get justice, but for Philemon to extend grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And in the very next verse, we'll see not only is he getting grace, but he's also getting mercy. He says, but if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Onesimus deserved to pay back everything he had taken. But Paul is saying, nope, have mercy on him. I'll take care of that. Like I said, Philemon was part of the Colossian church, and in his letter to the Colossians, Paul said this in verse 12 and 13 of chapter 3. He wrote, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now listen. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Scholars mostly are in agreement that his letter to the church of Colossae, the Colossians, and his letter to Philemon were probably written about the same time. They may have even been sent at the same time. And so he writes to the whole church, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so also should you. And then he says this letter to Philemon needs to be read to the whole church because he's going, this is what that looks like. What I wrote there in the letter to all of you, this letter that I'm writing to Philemon, this is what that looks like in action. Folks, this is what the gospel does. This is the kind of transformation that Jesus brings to a person's heart. He transforms a heart to such an extent that somebody sees a slave who wronged them as an honored brother. It transforms a heart to such an extent that someone would actually serve the very person who wronged them. Someone sent me a quote a few days ago that was so good. It said this, the Apostle Paul entered heaven to the cheers of those he martyred. Think about that. He entered heaven to the cheers, the applause of those that he had killed just for being a Christian before he encountered Jesus. That's how the gospel works. Back to Philemon, look at verse 20. It says, yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. He appeals to his heart again. In verse 7, he wrote, the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. 
And then in verse 20, now refresh my heart in Christ. By doing that, I believe Paul is, is telling Philemon, look, I'm not asking you to do something that you aren't already doing. This is who you are. So he's just affirming him. He's calling out who he is and those gifts in him again. He's blessing him again. Just presenting him another way to do what he's always done. Verse 21, having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. He blesses him again. Instead of saying, you better do this, he just affirms, no, I know you'll do this. He's just calling out that in him again. He's, he's operating, he's using the power of blessing here. So, what really is the lesson in all this for us today? Well, most people would probably say the primary lesson for us is that we need to try to be more like Onesimus. We should be more willing to extend grace and mercy to those who have done us wrong. And I will tell you that that is not the primary lesson that we should take from this. The reason why we would automatically jump to that conclusion is because, like I pointed out before, we have a big tendency to put ourselves at the center of every story. We love to make us the main character and then build a lesson around that. But no, Jesus is the center of the story. Every story, everything in the Bible is there to point us to him. This is a great example of what we're learning in the Believe class right now on Wednesday nights. I'm trying to show them that we don't read the Bible primarily to learn what we need to do. We read the Bible primarily to encounter Jesus. We looked at where Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 5, 39, he said, You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but I tell you it is these that testify of me, and you are willing to come to me so that you may have life. What that means is that life is not found in obeying the commands of the Bible. Life is not found just by obeying the commands of the Bible. Life is found in Jesus. We read the Bible first and foremost to encounter Him, and then the obedience comes as a response to that. But we usually get the cart before the horse. We read the Bible, and we go straight to the commands and instructions, completely missing on an encounter with Jesus. But no, you encounter Him first, and then the obedience follows. So how in the world do we encounter Jesus in this obscure letter to Philemon? Well, here's the deal. The other point I wanted to highlight today up on the screen, you will never be able to be like Philemon until you see yourself as Onesimus. You'll never be able to do what Paul's asking Philemon to do until you see yourself as Onesimus. I mean, think about this. What was Paul doing here? He was acting as a mediator between Philemon and Onesimus. And so Paul represents Jesus in the story, Philemon the father, and we are Onesimus. 
Because you see, if we are in Christ, Jesus goes before the Father on our behalf. The Bible says he is our mediator. And what does he say? What does he mediate? What does he request of the Father on our behalf? Well, I believe he requests the very thing that Paul says there in verse 17. Paul's words to Philemon are Jesus' words to the Father on our behalf. If then you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. Father, accept her as you would me. That's what our mediator says. Being in Christ means that God accepts you the same way that he accepts his son. It means the love that he has for his son is the same love that he has for you. God doesn't begrudgingly tolerate you. He doesn't hold his nose at you. No, he stands there with arms wide open and a big old smile radiating across his face like the father did to the prodigal son who walked up to the house that day. Some of you, I think, have a hard time believing that because you're thinking, but you don't know what I've done. Verse 18 is for you. But if he has wronged you in any way, charge that to my account. That's what Jesus says. Whatever you have done, Jesus takes that on himself. That's what the cross was all about. The Bible says that God, that before you were even formed in your mother's womb, God knew you. Romans 8, 29 says, those whom he foreknew, he, can, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That means when Jesus was on the cross, you were on his mind, and he was saying, whatever he does, whatever she does in the future, I know she's not even born yet. I know he's not even born yet, but he's going to do some things. He's going to do some horrible things, but whatever they do, I want you to put that on me right now. Put every bit of it, every sin they're going to commit in the future, put it on me. And God did and he completely poured out his wrath. Which means that whatever it is you think you've done, Jesus has already taken care of it. There is nothing left that would separate you from the love of God. You know, I realized something that I hadn't seen before when I was preparing this. You know how I often talk about I believe one of the greatest threats to the purity of the gospel is this transactional approach we tend to take with God. We try to make deals. God, if you will do this for me, I promise I will do this. And I tell you all the time, God, God doesn't make deals. He fulfills promises. Many of us can probably think of a time where we made some kind of promise or vow to God. Some of you probably still have that kind of hanging over you. Lingering in the back of your mind, feeling like, man, I, I, I promised him. I, I still got to uphold my end of the bargain there. And what I realize is that, is that this verse right here, verse 18, completely frees anyone from any type of foolish vow they've tried to make with God. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, Charge that to my account. Which means Jesus not only takes your sin, but he also takes your vows. <laughs> he takes it all. Anything that God would have against you, 
anything that God can hang over your head. He put it on Jesus. All that we would seek to gain from God is found solely in him. So y'all being able to forgive and extend grace to others, especially those who have done us wrong, can only happen once you see how that same grace was extended to you through Jesus. Once you see how wrong you have done God and how he responded to that through the grace of his son, only then will you understand what that really means. Can we then extend that same grace to others? What we do towards others, how we relate to others is our response to our encounter with him. And that's when it becomes a want to instead of a have to. And so by encountering Jesus in this text first, the principle of blessing then takes effect. Remember what I said earlier. Blessing is not the reward for obedience. It is the power for obedience. Once you see how blessed you are in Christ and that God accepts you the same way he accepts Jesus, that should then empower us to extend that same grace to others. But it all starts with encountering Jesus first. That's what he wants from us. He doesn't want us to give us a bunch of things to tell us to do. He wants us to encounter him. And I believe that he led some of you here today for that very purpose, for you to encounter him. Open your eyes and see him. Submit yourself to him and say, Jesus, reveal yourself. And I believe he will. Let's pray. God, it is only by your spirit that we are able to see truth and grasp it and have it change us, set us free. So Holy Spirit, would you come and do that now? Lord, I pray for the one who may be in here today who has been running from you. that they would feel your irresistible call and just come to you in complete surrender. Lord, for those who have not really fully understood what grace really means in their life, Lord, would you cause the light to come on now? Lord, for those who someone came to their mind, talking about those who have done us wrong, pray that, Lord, that they'd be able to just lay that person at your feet and even be a place of honesty. God, I, I'm not at that place right now where I can forgive, where I can extend grace. Lord, I believe that you appreciate the honesty where we are. God, you meet us right there. You meet us in our inadequacy. You meet us in our, I'm not there yet. And you gently lead us to where you know is best. And so, Lord, I pray for you minister to those that are in that place right now. God, thank you for loving us the way you love your son. 
Help us to live from that love in everything we do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.